Spencer Balper and the Tijuana Brass. I'm Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraphs Audio. My guest on this edition of Fangraphs Audio, making his weekly Monday appearance on a Tuesday, is our managing editor, Dave Cameron. In what follows, I asked Cameron to bring some sanity, if he would, to the weekend incident that saw Cole Hamels intentionally, it turns out, hit celebrated Nationals rookie Bryce Harper. We use that incident as an entry point into a larger discussion of the National League East, which division the Washington Nationals are currently leading, but with a recent injury to outfielder Jason Wirth and a pitching staff that's probably due for regression, only do so tenuously. Finally, I asked Cameron about his Tuesday piece, in which he compares Houston Astros second baseman Jose Altuve's offensive abilities to Cubs shortstop Starling Castro's. In response to Cameron's suggestion that Altuve is a franchise player, I ask how good a franchise might be if Jose Altuve is the best player in it. It's Fangraphs Audio with managing editor Dave Cameron, and it begins right now. You were somewhere. You were in Cincinnati? I was in Cincinnati, yeah. The home, no, no Cincinnati, the Paris of the Midwest. Uh, that is not how I would describe it. I actually really enjoyed my time in Cincinnati, but at no point did I ever think I was in France. What did you, um, so you were in Cincinnati, though, for, uh, well, I call it a serious reason. I mean, it, it's for a serious cause, I suppose, um, but you're allowed to have fun while you're doing that. What, what were, what were uh, well, you doing? maybe not while we were doing it. <laughs> I mean, I don't think we had much fun when we were actually doing the running. Uh, so my wife and five of her coworkers uh, and one of her coworkers' husbands um, and myself all raised money for the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society as part of Team in Training, which is the fundraising arm of the LLS. Um, and they sponsor uh, teams to go run in marathons and half marathons and 100-mile bike rides and triathlons and all kinds of other crazy athletic events. Um, and so you basically raise funds for LLS and then pick a particular event to go participate in. Uh, and they, so the Flying Pig was one of the uh, events that we could participate in in Cincinnati. It was drivable from our uh, location in North Carolina. That's the one uh, our team decided to do. So uh, we ended up running... Uh, in the Cincinnati heat up really large hills, although we can get to this later. I didn't actually run up the hill. Everyone else did. Um, but, uh, yeah, there was uh, seven people completed a half marathon or six people completed a half marathon, and I completed part of it uh, to raise uh, just over $17,000 for the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. Okay. So, so um, now I will say, Cameron, that in addition to the fact that um, you've only recently been um, cleared as being leukemia-free and, and obviously went through the attendant treatment. Generally, if I were to describe you and your um, like uh, body a body type and sort of what I would think would be your sort of athletic advantages, they would be more strength-based? Maybe I'm Are wrong? you calling me big? No, no, I'm just saying that, that you're a strong guy, but, <laughs> but I would not necessarily say you have what I would describe as the prototypical long-distance runner's body. Yeah, well, I'm not. I, I'm not a runner. I don't like running. Uh, and you know, like, so my wife and her coworkers decided to do this um, in honor of you know the fact that I had leukemia last year. 
And then after I got out of chemo, I decided, you know, when I went back to the gym and started working out, I felt pretty good. I decided to try and do it with him. Uh, about a month ago, my doctor said, like, this is not a great idea. Uh, running 13 miles a few months after you finish chemo is maybe a little too intense. Don't do it. So I was forbidden from doing the whole thing. Uh, but I was able to do the start and the finish. Um, so I ran the first three miles in the last two um, and was able to cross with my wife, which was a pretty uh, good experience. And it was helpful to her after she had to run the full 13 and was exhausted. So having someone to run beside her at the end was, uh, was quite helpful. And also uh, in- interesting note for those who are interested in finishing a half marathon but don't want to run the whole thing, uh, the flying pig apparently didn't disqualify me despite the fact that I skipped the middle eight miles. So, uh, you know, feel free to just run little you'll get an official time. Yeah, I, don't, I think there's a tradition of that. I remember notably, it was sometime in the uh, mid-80s, I think, maybe late 70s, a woman by the name of Rosie Ruiz or something along this. Yeah. Uh, she she took she started the Boston Marathon and then took the tea to, like, the end. Right. I think she took a cab, didn't she? Yeah, well, so even so she wasn't even helping the Boston Metropolitan Transit System or whatever. <laughs> Um, right. I mean, yeah, you know, I just, I just, I, I walked uh, from one point to another point, took about an hour and a half break, and then when my wife finally got to mile eleven, I joined back in. I expected there to be like barriers to prevent this kind of thing. Uh, no, no. Apparently, it's all just on the honor system. I, I could have finished first I, if I knew this ahead of time. I would have won the thing. What a story! What a story that would have been. Survives leukemia, yeah. finishes first in the flying pig. Half marathon. Yeah, it would have been. Uh, we we actually had all kinds of interesting plans of things to do to to make the race more interesting. Like I thought that perhaps Amy could just give me her wedding rings, and then like I could carry them with me. And when we crossed the finish line, I could get down and like propose, and everyone would be like, you know, hey, look how sweet he's proposing at the end of this half marathon. But then we realized, you know, the news might catch on, and our fraud would be exposed. It'd be a sham, indeed. Yeah, but well, so you raised. But the good news is that you raised money for the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. Yes, um, and that you were able to experience Cincinnati. Right, which I actually, you know, I've asked on Twitter before I left. Like, people give me the highlights of Cincinnati, and like eleven people all made the same joke about it being the departure terminal at the airport or the exit or when you cross the state line. Uh, there were a lot of anti-Cincinnati tweets coming my way, I actually thought it was a pretty decent city. I mean, I obviously was only there for a couple of days and didn't get to experience, you know, all that it has to offer, but the uh, area that we were in downtown near the stadiums was pretty nice, and um, we found a couple of decent restaurants. I, I will say that the, the food that everyone told me I had to try is like the local Cincinnati uh, favorite of Skyline Chili, uh, horrendous, and I would never eat it again. But besides that, uh, everything else was pretty good. Right, and that that is yeah, that's chili on top of pasta. No, no, this is uh, it's a chili cheese dog basically. So it's a small little hot dog covered in the, their version of chili, which apparently doesn't have any beans in it, and is also a little bit sweet, uh, and then lathered in cheddar cheese. Okay, so that's a dish that people eat. There you yeah, go. Yeah, apparently a lot of it in Cincinnati. It's a it's a very Western dish, I would assume. Okay. Well, that's fine anyway. But th- that's good that you did that, and uh, uh, I, you know, obviously continue with the cause and uh, uh, for uh, raising money. Now, if people are interested in participating in uh, supporting LLS or uh, similar organizations, is there anything they can do um, beyond? Uh, I mean, now that the marathon is over. 
So I would encourage anyone to, who's interested in this to uh, look up Team in Training. They have chapters all around the country, um, so they almost certainly have one near to where all of our listeners are, uh, except for maybe the super rural ones. But for most people who live near a metropolitan area, there's going to be some kind of Team in Training chapter in your area, and uh, you can look into joining up with them and doing a race um, to help their cause. Uh, and, you know, I think they announced at our group dinner on Saturday night that uh, team in training has raised over a billion dollars for uh, blood cancer research in their 50 years of existence, um, which is pretty amazing. And so it's a really great organization. Um, and, you know, it's it's not that hard to get up to be able to run, you know, a decent distance. I was able to run five miles uh, after, you know, being told to, to cool it with my training a couple months after chemo. So, you know, I would say that pretty much anyone uh, with any degree of, uh, you know, legs, can probably get up to being able to run 13 miles with a little bit of training and a little bit of hard work. Um, and if you can raise, you know, several thousand dollars for cancer research at the same time, it's definitely worth doing. Okay. All right. Well, good stuff, all of that. Now, Cameron, while you were out of town, uh, there was a little bit of a baseballing kerfuffle. Um, you know, there have been a number of stories. This is the two podcasts in a row where we've kerfuffle. worked kerfuffle. In yeah, that's it, podcast. right. Yeah. That's right. I, um, this is going to be like a weekly thing now. Um, well, what, so what, you, you're probably aware of what happened. Um, and I guess... Uh, one thing I think that um, Fangraphs does pretty well is bringing sanity to stories that are maybe treated with uh, less um, less restraint in the in the mainstream media. And I was wondering, I guess, what what might be drawn from this. And, and the episode, of course, was uh, between Cole Hamels and Bryce Harper, um, notably uh, Cole Hamels in, in Harper's first plate appearance um, hit hit Harper uh, with a fastball square in the back. Uh, it's the sort of thing when you see it, uh, whether live or, or 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 replays of it, it looks intentional. And of course, Cole Hamels said um, after the game that it was intentional, and he's been suspended five games. Which we can you know debate the merits of that sort of suspension for a starting pitcher, which essentially just puts pushes a start back by a day. Um, I guess my my question is regarding this. Uh, in sort of you know taking maybe some of you know, the sort of armchair psychology out of it, Cole Hamill says that he's doing this to sort of participate in old baseballing tradition. I'm wondering if there's anything that you can tell to be gained on one hand or the other, either from are, are, are pitchers, for example, who hit people, are they known to be somehow more effective, or is it or is it a different sort of edge that Hamill's is looking to to uh, to get here? Yeah, I mean, it's one of those things that I don't think that there's a definitive answer on. I know uh, a couple weeks ago, Tom Tango looked at it on the book of, like, guys who hit a lot of batters uh, and their, you know, collective performances over their careers. And I think Kurt Schilling, like, hit a ton of guys, and Randy Johnson hit a ton of guys. And there's some really good pitchers who regularly beam people. Um, but it doesn't necessarily follow that they were good because they hit people. Like, they, they could have just been a, uh, a byproduct of some – uh, personality thing that had nothing to do with how good they were actually pitching. So uh, I don't think it's clear at all that you need to hit someone uh, with regularity in order to back them off the plate in order to have success. I know that's a, a baseball truism, but I, I haven't seen a lot of evidence for it. I'm pretty sure you can be a good pitcher without drilling people. Uh, you know, whether it actually helps, you know, maybe Bryce Harper's uh, a little more um, – cautious in his uh, stance against Hamels next time, or maybe he's just angry and he swings to the fences and strikes out more often than he would. We don't really know. It's all very speculative. Um, I will say that I think the reaction to Hamels 
hitting Harper, you know, with some of the, oh, he could have injured him, was a little bit hyperbolic. I mean, you know, if you saw the pitch, it hit him just above the butt, uh, square in the back. There was no chance of Harper getting any kind of serious injury. Um, you know, it wasn't anywhere near his head. Uh, Hamels has good enough command that, you know, he wasn't going to miss by three feet. Uh, and Harper's back is pretty far from any kind of, uh, you know, serious part of his body that could get injured. So, you know, I, I'm not a big fan of throwing at people in baseball. I don't like the, you know, I'm going to be in your guy because you being my guy retaliation. But I also don't think Hamels did anything to put Harper's career in jeopardy. Right. And so is that for you the main issue that, that we have two different types of, of, of things going on here? On the one hand, there's a sort of message pitch, which is the hit by pitch, where a pitcher sort of aiming at a, at a batter's trunk versus another sort, which is actually uh, intended to injure, essentially. Yeah, I mean, I would hope that not too many pitchers intend to injure, uh, and I don't think I've ever heard anyone admit to intending to injure. Certainly there are pitchers who will pitch up and in, uh, and for me that's maybe more of a serious offense. If you're going to throw a 97-mile-an-hour fastball up and in and try and you know knock a guy down, uh, which is often lauded by broadcasters as like a, the manly thing to do, to me that's a little pretty dangerous because you, then you miss your target by six inches, you're hitting him in the head, potentially risking concussions or broken eye bones, and there's there's serious issues with throwing high up and in uh, towards the batter's facial area. When you're just throwing 91 mile an hour fastball at someone's back, uh, you know they might be able to get out of the way. Like, the, the risk of them getting injured is just not very high. Um, so I'm, you know, I wouldn't say I'm okay with it. Uh, I wish it didn't exist in baseball, but it doesn't outrage me at all. Uh, when someone throws up and in towards the batter's head, that's to me something that Major League Baseball needs to work on to curtail. Cameron, if you don't have outrage, how are we going to get um, page views and links to this podcast? Uh, well, we'll probably just you know put a whole bunch of SEO keywords in there. Uh, maybe mention you know like Britney Spears or something, and uh, the page views will follow. Right. It, it, Britney Spears still works as a as a major draw. Uh, well, I don't know. My pop culture references are all 15 years old. They are. That's a fact. Um, now. One thing that's that's probably notable about this situation between Hamels and Harper, uh, you know, larger uh, between the Phillies and Nationals, is that um, it, it points to the fact that at some level the Nationals are relevant in something. Um, there have been very few instances prior to this year um, regarding the Nationals or in their previous incarnation as the Expos, you know, especially the latter years of the Expos, that's what I mean, um, where people have been looking to send the Nationals messages. Harper is part of that, certainly. The Nationals starting rotation is part of that. Where do you see the Nationals right now? And then perhaps uh, where do you see them post uh, Jason Worth's injury? Of course, uh, he'll, he'll be out for an extended period um, after breaking his wrist. Yeah, I mean, going into the year, I had the Nationals as a 500-ish team, maybe slightly better than that, depending on how much you like their pitching staff. Uh, obviously, their pitching has been fantastic the first month of the season, but as I wrote a couple weeks ago, a large part of their um, run prevention has been home run prevention, and that's one of those things that's not overly predictive. Uh, they have by far the lowest home run to fly ball rate in baseball. I think Gio Gonzalez still hasn't given up a home run this year. Uh, these are just things that aren't going to continue, and so I think their pitching is uh, performing over the level that we should expect. It's good, but it's not this good, and their offense is not good at all, and losing Jason Works for several months is only going to hurt that. So I think what we're looking at is a uh, you know team that should be in the upper tier of run prevention 
probably not the very best like they are right now, but in the upper tier. But their run scoring is going to be so poor that they're probably not that much better than an average team. So I would expect they're probably going to win about half of their games going forward, maybe a little less now that they don't have worth and they don't have a lot of great internal options to replace him. Um, you know, depending on how Ryan Zimmerman performs the rest of the year, uh, his shoulder's still a little bit of a question mark. So, you know, I would say this is a five, still a 500-ish team. The fact that they're, you know, played better than that at the start means they might end up with 85 wins instead of the 81 or 82 we might have thought at the beginning of the season. Uh, but I, I still don't think this is necessarily a top-tier National League team. And depending on, you know, how the Braves perform the rest of the year and when the Phillies can get guys like Chase Utley back, I still think the Nationals are probably on the outside looking in for a playoff berth at the end of the year. Now, the, the NL East, generally speaking, is a strange place right now. Um, the, of course, the Nationals have the best record in that division, but they also, um, as, as we've mentioned, have recently lost both Ryan Zimmerman and Jason Wirth. Um, they've been replaced by, I guess, Steve Lombardazzi and somebody, Roger Bernadina. Yeah, well, they actually activated Zimmerman off the DL when they put Worth on the DL today. So Zimmerman's back, so they're not going to be without both of them at the same time. Uh, so Zimmerman's back, that will probably push Lombardo to be back into a utility role. And then, unfortunately, the Nationals allow Chad Tracy to get some more time in the outfield. Uh, so, yeah, the, the Nationals outfield is certainly an issue. Um, of course, the Braves uh, the Braves are in second place, and uh, if I'm not mistaken, have the best offense of the bunch. Um, but the Mets, Marlins, Phillies, they're all uh, very tightly packed, um, even early on. And it, it seems at this point that that some of the teams are, I mean, they're getting, they're doing it in different ways, but they're sort of ending up in the same place. You say that for you, the Nationals... Uh, are not necessarily a playoff team right now in terms of true talent, if nothing else. I mean, who is the playoff team there? Uh, I like Atlanta. Uh, I think that they've got a strong balance of offense, pitching, and defense. Uh, they've certainly got guys like Michael Bourne performing over their heads, and their offense isn't as good as it has been to date. But, you know, Brian McCann and Dan Ugla and Jason Hayward, I mean, you know, even a little bit of a resurgent Chipper Jones. There's some good hitters on that team. They're, you know, the Braves can always pitch well. Their bullpen's ridiculous. Um, I think the Braves are probably going to be the winner of that division. Uh, you know, the Phillies probably are the best team when they're healthy at, at a full 100%. But, you know, Chase Utley, no one really knows when he's going to come back. He's not even really working out. Um, so he's nowhere close to a return. And uh, their bench is really not good. So when you look at, like, the, the downgrade that they lose from Utley going to Freddie Galvis and Ty Wigginton playing regularly and, you know, Juan Pierre and, uh, you know, getting a lot of bats in the field, this is not a team that can afford to lose a guy like Utley or even a Ryan Howard, who, while overrated, is still a decently productive player at times. Uh, you know, I think the Phillies have some significant problems, and their slow start probably puts them uh, a full step behind the Braves in the National League East race. Is that where we sort of see a general manager or a front office's um, skills come into play, or is that one of the places where you see um, injury replacements who don't necessarily represent huge drop-offs from the starters that they're replacing? Uh, I mean, I think that's certainly one area where a team can, you know, get an advantage. I think we've seen with Tampa Bay, uh, you know, they've figured out ways to collect these interesting guys and keep them in AAA, and when people go down, you know, they're calling up guys who are productive and they're kind of, you know, playing the matchups. Um, but at the same time, I think it's a bit of a challenge because when you have a player as good as Utley, you're not going to be able to lure interesting free agents there to, you know, sit on the bench and say, okay, well, you're going to play when this guy is unhealthy and then you're going to never play when he is healthy. I think having 
premium players kind of makes it difficult to get players to want to sign in your organization if they play those same positions. So I wouldn't say that it's a knock completely against Ruben Amaro that he couldn't get someone to come be uh, Chase Utley's caddy. I mean, even with Utley's injury concerns, no one really wants to sit on the bench the second half of the year. So. Uh, interesting, actually sort of an interesting pair of pieces today at the site. Um, Ryan Campbell led with a piece uh, regarding Starlin Castro, noting that he is a good baseball player. Um, and then uh, you, you, you count, well, not necessarily countered, but you sort of uh, augmented that by noting that Jose Altuve uh, is basically Starlin Castro, which I guess uh, syllogis, uh, via syllogism, we might also conclude that Jose Altuve is a good baseball player as well. Uh, you mentioned that Altuve is a franchise-type uh, player. Um, I, I, I don't know. What does it say about a franchise if, if Jose Altuve is the franchise player? Well, I mean, obviously the Astros are not in a great position in terms of talent. Uh, I think everyone knew that coming into the season. Before the year, we were talking about a player on a good team where right now he's showing that he might be a little more than that. Uh, I don't think that... Altuve is going to be a superstar. I think his size can be overrated, but when you're and I, so I do think that Altuve is going to top out as probably a good player instead of a great player. Um, and you probably don't want your best franchise player to be a good player. Uh, but you know, if he's like really a three or four win second baseman, uh, you know, that's there aren't a lot of three or four win second baseman running around baseball right now. Um, that's you know up there with a guy like Ricky Weeks who's getting you know fifty sixty million dollar contract extensions and. Um, you know, Dan Uglow was a three or four win player and was a, was a really nice player for quite a while. So, you know, I don't think that we, you need a five or six win guy to be your franchise player or to earn the franchise player tag. Maybe Altuve is less of a franchise player than a guy like, you know, Bryce Harper or something. But uh, he's not the worst guy in the world to have, uh, especially when he's 22 and, you know, isn't going to make any money for the next three years. Is it? Uh, there are definitely people who are surprised by that comment to, to say that Jose Altuve is is basically, um, especially offensively, is basically the same as Starlin Castro because Castro has been uh, sort of celebrated as a project and Altuve's ascent has um, been been less celebrated. What, um, I guess, why is why was Altuve's sort of his ascent through the minor leagues and his major league uh, debut, why was that a little bit more muted in terms of attention? Well, I mean, his value is certainly a factor. So, I mean, I think if you look at any uh, player of all today's size, you're going to get some skepticism uh, about his ability to hit. And, you know, we saw the same thing with Dustin Pedroia. Uh, you know, he hit well in college, he hit well in the minors, but, you know, he was 5'7", like listed at 5'7", maybe, or he might be listed at 5'9". That's extremely generous. Probably more like 5'6", or you know, maybe 5'7". Um, and so we saw the similar kind of, so he's too small to hit for power, uh, idea, but I think with, um, you know, with, with Pedroia's success, you would hope that scouts could kind of warm up to the idea that shorter guys who hit the ball square it up and hit the ball hard with regularity can be uh, quality offensive performers. I don't, I'm not saying Altuve is going to be Dustin Pedroia. I think that's, you know, uh, the absolute max of what he could possibly become. Um, but I do think that, you know, the size certainly had something to do with it. The fact that Castro was a shortstop and Altuve is a second baseman. Second base prospects are generally not all that well regarded. 
you know, I think there's a variety of factors that play into it. Altuve also, you know, didn't spend a lot of time in the high minors, so he was an A-ball for a, a significant chunk of the last couple of years, and you don't generally get too excited about guys in A-ball. Um, but I think, you know, Altuve is showing that uh, he's better than the hype was expected. One of your favorite things to discuss on the podcast, um, or anywhere for that matter, is the uh, Fangraphs power rankings that occur weekly now at SI.com. Uh, the Astros, the Houston Astros, um, for whom Altuve plays, are currently 10th um, on on those same power rankings, and their their record um, is is starting to catch up with with uh, their WAR winning percentage, or I should say their their actual record is starting to catch up with their WAR winning uh, WAR record. Um, we know, of course, that WAR is not entirely infallible, um, but it is looking at elements that are, are a little bit under the surface and, and at least a little bit perhaps more predictive than actual winning percentage. Um, do you think that the Astros will be ranked 10th on those same power rankings, say, for example, at the end of the season? And I guess, um, you know, what, what is an argument for, for them um, actually succeeding in, in the NL Central this year? Yeah, I mean, certainly I don't think the Astros are going to keep this up. I mean, a large part of their success to date has been Altuve, uh, you know, basically hitting like Ryan Braun or something. Uh, he's got a 398 batting average of balls in play. Uh, war captures that as value that has occurred, but, you know, we know that that's not predictive in the sense that that's not going to continue. Uh, same thing, Jed Lowry has hit like a man on fire for the last uh, month or so. Uh, he's not going to keep hitting like he's been hitting. Uh, so there's guys who are performing over their heads. In, in Houston, um, so I think that we, you know, should still expect the Astros to be one of the worst teams in baseball over the rest of the season, and their strong start of the season shouldn't change the fact that, you know, overall, uh, this team lacks talent and is probably not going to be able to hang out in the National League standings for too long. Uh, but overall, I do think that, you know, they're maybe a little bit better than we gave them credit for, and, you know, maybe they'll end the year in the 20 to 25 range instead of the 25 to 30 range that we would have expected before. It's still, you know, we sort of, we talked to briefly about, um, you know, making moves for for interesting, um, if not necessarily celebrated free agents like the, like the Rays might. I'm curious. They've they've made uh, they made a signing of Justin Maxwell over this um, over the off season, or maybe maybe the very beginning of the season. Um, Justin Maxwell has been working in a sort of semi platoon with Jordan Schaefer, who's also hit quite well, and um, whose BABIP is also. Uh, potentially inflated at the moment. But I'm curious, do, do, does the signing of Justin Maxwell, who is uh, who has been a prospect before, um, probably can hit lefties okay and can play a decent center field, is that, for you, is that the signing of, of a smart team? Is that the signing that the Houston Astros would have made in the uh, pre-Lonau era? Well, I mean, I think, so Maxwell's an interesting guy in that he can, you know, serve as a, a platoon outfielder now and potentially grow into more than that if he, you know, ever lives up to his tools. I think they actually claimed him off waivers from the Yankees. Uh, but that's the kind of thing that, you know, a bad team that gets first waiver priority can kind of do with regularity. They say, okay, I'm at the bottom of the standings. Uh, I'm just going to pick off the best of the waiver bait. Uh, and, I, you know, so I would be a little hesitant to say, like, this is an example of, of Lunau's, uh, you know, progressive front office taking advantage of a market inefficiency and just say, well, this is, you know, the Astros recognizing that a toolsy outfielder with some upside is not a bad use of a 25-man roster spot when you're not expecting to win. So, you know, I think we've seen, uh, you know, mediocre GMs uh, have made bets on similar kinds of players before. Sometimes they work, most times they don't, but it's worth trying when you're not a great team. 
Um, I do think that the Astros deserve some credit for kind of understanding where they are for the first time in quite a while and saying, hey, look, we're not, we're probably not going to win. Uh, so let's, you know, maximize our roster for future value rather than for present value. Let's not give so much playing time to guys who are at the end of their careers and let's take some chances on some young guys who might turn into something like a guy like Maxwell. Uh, uh, okay, finally, before I let you go, I want to ask you, um, we talked on this podcast a couple weeks ago, uh, for good reason, we talked about Philip Humber. He had just thrown a perfect game against your Seattle Mariners, and at that time you wrote a piece that um, utilized logic and evidence to suggest that Philip Humber uh, was not merely uh, was not merely just an arm in that rotation, probably not just uh, not just a league average arm, but something more than that. Um, a sort of another success story uh, for pitching coach Don Cooper. However, Philip Humber's most recent what three or four starts have been decidedly poor. Uh, I'm curious. Uh, I think the word you're looking for is atrocious. Atrocious, right? I, I mean, is this uh, l- looking back on it? Are we seeing just another pitcher dominating the Mariners? Um, or, or are we seeing, or are we seeing uh, something else? I mean, is there a reason to suspect injury, etc.? Well, so with Humber, uh, I think we should at least note that the post was not necessarily written entirely as a reaction to his perfect game, but to point out that you know Cooper had made some actual changes to the pitches he was throwing, and the, these improvements dated back to last year. So hopefully, the piece came across not as this guy who had one good performance is definitely for real as much as it was a, hey, this is kind of a continuing trend of improvement under a pitching coach who has a history of improving guys when he gets them. Uh, so I don't think we want to say, okay, you know, Philip Humber had a few bad starts after his, or really awful starts after his perfect game, therefore he, the perfect game was a fluke. I mean, the perfect game clearly was a fluke, but I don't think that the recent few starts invalidate the idea that Philip Humber is, can still be an effective major league pitcher. And it's probably worth noting, uh, while we don't delve too much into the off-the-field stuff, I believe Philip Humber's wife had a baby about three days after he threw a perfect game, and uh, he was away from the team for a while. Uh, as Eno Saris can attest, uh, when you have a new baby, your sleeping patterns are not normal. And so I think it's at least possible that being a new father is uh, playing some factor into Humber's struggles over the last couple of weeks. Uh, and, you know, potentially he, he can take some of his, uh, money, bring himself a nanny and, you know, an echo chamber or something that he can sleep into. Uh, an echo chamber would actually be a really terrible place to sleep. Uh, you know, some kind of... Padded room. Padded, a, uh, yeah. Yeah. A soundproof device that would allow him to sleep well. Uh, and, you know, his performance will probably turn around. A lot of it's just been hits on balls in play anyway. So, you know, I'm still a guy who believes in Phil Humber, uh, his last few starts notwithstanding. Yeah, that's true. You know, that's interesting though. I mean, uh, those adjustments that, or I mean, um, I guess those those instances like that, and I remember like a, I mean a much bigger case of it I think from uh, five years ago now was involving Adam Everett maybe when he was playing for the Tigers and something horrible had happened his wife had had cancer or something like that, um, or or maybe a, a uh, you know one of his tri- it, it involved something like a, like a major personal problem, um, something for which you could totally forgive. Uh, anyone, you know, um, if, if their performance was declining in whatever field they were involved in, you know, um, but it's not something that you see, I guess, all the time as a as a fan. You don't necessarily have the access to that, and probably for good reason, because people, you know, people uh, have private lives, and some of those things are hard to articulate to the public. 
but it it does seem to me as though it would it would there would be some sort of advantage for players if some of that information could be made public. You know, like if there was like some sort of uh, statement to say uh, I am dealing with a personal issue right now that has you know nothing to do with baseball and yet uh, takes priority. And I'm curious, do you see any sort of effort on a, like a team level or a media level to make that clear? I, to be clear that I'm not in the clubhouse every day and I'm speaking as an outsider uh, and I could be, you know, people with better access to the players could refute me on this and I would not necessarily argue with them. But my perspective uh, is that there's a culture of baseball, a culture in baseball that is very um, uh, type A and says do not make excuses for your poor performance and that any kind of, you know, reasoned, logical explanation for poor performance is often seen as like a, a sign of weakness. And so, you know, for a player to come out and say, hey, look, I know I'm poor, poor, performing poorly, and the reason why is some other reason besides the fact that I have performed poorly is can be seen as like escaping accountability or not owning up to your struggles and can be seen negatively in a lot of circles uh, around baseball. And so I think players and teams are you know, not necessarily looking to do that, and they're just more interested in players uh, manning up and saying, I sucked, or, you know, and taking taking it on the chin. Um, I don't see that there is a big push in baseball for, you know, more explanation of, of reasons beyond just, you know, I did bad. Is that why Is that why the stories uh, for both uh, Zach Greinke and, um, and Joey Votto, their, their uh, respective... Um, Issues with anxiety. Is that why that was, those were sort of considered exceptional? Uh, I think that there's definitely something along those lines where, you know, these kinds of um, emotional, uh, personal feelings type of issues, you know, they're not really well um, covered in the game. And I think what we've seen is, you know, these kinds of issues aren't uh, openly talked about in too many instances. There's certainly not the only two players who've ever struggled with any kind of. Um, you know, whether you want to call it depression or sadness or um, anxiety, whatever it is. I mean, even Aubrey Huff taking up a couple of weeks away, the Giants didn't really get too much into an explanation of why, and no one really uh, wanted to go too much further into, you know, how that situation was handled. It's just one of those things in baseball that I think people are uncomfortable with. They don't really know how to handle, and I'm mostly speaking of the media here, not necessarily the teams, but, uh, you know, I think that fans in general um, – we just don't really know what to do with situations like this. It strikes me, though, that those sort of instances also represent opportunities. I know when uh, Joey Votto uh, was dealing with, with depression or anxiety, um, uh, I think it, 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 was, it was triggered largely by the death of his father. That seems to me something that could speak rather powerfully to, uh, especially among American men who are sort of, famous for not knowing how to articulate their emotions. If you have some uh, a man who's obviously very talented at what he does, like Joey Votto is, um, you know, somehow, uh, you know, uh, approaching that subject, it seems as though that could actually be regarded as an opportunity for sort of um, helping men be able to articulate those sorts of feelings. Yeah, but I think that there would have to be some desire on a guy like Votto's part in order to play that role. And if I'm a major league baseball player and I'm already, uh, you know, noticed as a public face when I'm out and, you know, uh, recognized for my on-field abilities, I don't know that I would also then want to, you know, be the public face of men with feelings. And I, I just think, like, you know, 
they probably already have enough to deal with, right? Rather right. than trying to be the spokesman for alpha males who also have, uh, you know, they're secure enough in their masculinity to cry when they're when someone dies. I right. just think like that's probably an issue that they just want to handle privately and so, you know more power to them. Right, and I guess it's a question of incentives, right? If if you're Joey Votto or Zach Greinke or anyone like that, especially who you know receives more attention in the media, the incentive for you. Um, to sort of make yourself even more vulnerable or, or to make yourself um, – to expose yourself more so publicly it does not really exist. Right. I, I would say that, you know, there has to be some reason for these guys to want to put themselves out there to an even greater degree than they're already out there, and I'm not really sure what the reward would be. I mean, maybe their fans would feel like they were even more connected to them personally, but, you know, I mean, whether that's a positive or a negative could be argued, and um, certainly it would expose the player to – you know, different kinds of critiques and, you know, potentially a backlash from people who just think that every ball player should be a man and scratch his nuts and get on with it. Um, and so if I, you know, if I was a, a major league player in that situation, I'd probably just uh, tell people it was none of, their, none of their business and go on with my day. Right. Well, if nothing else, um, on this podcast today, we've we've accomplished one thing, and that's, uh, that's being able to hear you say for the first time, I believe in podcast history, scratch his nuts. Right. Yes. We'll, we'll try and work that in with kerfuffle next week. Oh so God! We'll kerfuffle that will, that that will be there. Will there is a kerfuffle to be had? Uh, to be had there. Uh, all right. We'll we'll let you go do whatever Dave Cameron does. In the meantime, however, uh, thank you for joining us for your weekly appearance this time on a Tuesday uh, because you were away doing good work. Well, actually, I was away driving through Kentucky and West Virginia and uh, other notable parts of the Midwest. By the way. I will say, if you're ever driving from Cincinnati uh, back down to the southeast, uh, whatever you do, do not take State Route 73. It is horrible and should probably just be washed away by a flood because it is the worst road I've ever traveled on. You mean the quality of the road itself? It, it is a disaster. So it's like a two-lane road through the country, which could be nice, except for the road has the topography of a uh, Disneyland roller coaster on steroids. So literally... You are trying to make good time because you want to get home, doing, you know, speeds between 40 and 50 miles an hour while going over some significant hills and turns, uh, and then running into construction that closes the road with no warning, uh, and then stoplights. It's really just all very, very bad. What area of the country is that in? Uh, that was in the Kentucky-Ohio border. Uh, basically, when you head south out of Cincinnati, you kind of go along that Ohio-Kentucky uh, border for a while. There's several routes to get back to where we were headed, which was 64 uh, east-west, which would take us back through West Virginia down into Virginia and North Carolina. Uh, on the way up, we took a really good route of 35 north to 32 west. That route was amazing. We decided, for whatever reason, I guess I decided uh, really stupidly to try something new, even though I had a positive experience with 35 and 32 on the way up. took 73 to 52 on the way back, and it was the worst driving experience of my life. Um, yeah, and it's, so it's hilly, it sounds like you're saying. It's super hilly and, uh, you know, very slow. It takes you through, like, a whole bunch of small towns where you have to do 25 miles an hour. Uh, you get stuck behind lumber trucks. Uh, there's, you know, many, many, many stoplights. It's all just, like, Google Maps should not offer it as an option for anyone, or it should say, like, you know, only drive this road if you want to lose your sanity. Actually, that wouldn't be bad, because, well, of course, Google offers, uh, you know, you, if you, like, look up a restaurant or whatever, or you say, what restaurant's the area, Google will show you, and 
there were reviews, if there were also reviews of certain drives, certain routes that, that you could, or you know, at least you had the option taking, there could be uh, yeah. reviews of those. I mean, one of the things that I thought, you know, after taking this road yesterday, is that Google should offer, like, you know, they have satellite imagery, and then they have street view, and they have, you know, all these other options. They should have a topographical view of, like, hey, look, this route's pretty flat and pretty fun, and, you know, this route is, like, uh, you know, going to make you vomit. And, you know, if I had known of the topography of Route 73, I, I clearly would not have chosen it. So get on that, Google. I would, Well, I would submit that there's a route that is excessively flat, is also rather boring. I mean, I could see your intentions in saying, oh, this this has some texture to it. That's not bad. Yeah, there's a difference between texture and uh, needing to lose your lunch. Okay. I do agree with that, Cameron. Yeah. And in this case, I will I will submit to you. You're the one who experienced it. Um, well, I, I think in all things, you should probably just defer to submitting to me. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Mm. That can be a topic for next week's discussion. You, okay. You can ponder it for seven days. I will do that. And then uh, let me know. Actually, how, how uh, I, sh- I should maybe announce now that I will be um, out of town next week. I, I, have to tell, I should probably tell you and Appleman. Um, yes, right. Yes. Inform your bosses of your vacation before you inform listeners. Well, vacation's a strong word. We can talk about it afterwards. We will save that for the post uh uh, the, the off-air discussion that we typically have. Okay. Yeah. Uh, but that is Dave Cameron. I'm Carson yeah, Stoley. And this has been... Yeah, right. Fangraphs Audio. Bye. Bye.